Then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. I will establish the throne of David's line forever. His house and his kingdom will endure forever before me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. There before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Open-eyed, wide-eyed, the two men recognized Jesus. He was the one who was foretold. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here today here at First Christian Church. Um, I would like to do something that's not on, the, it's not on our plan sheet, if you will, but um, it's so good to see some of you who haven't seen for a year. And uh, can we pray that this would soon be over, completely over? Let's pray. God, seeing faces, God, of friends and fellow followers of Jesus Christ, it's been quite a wild ride, Lord, the last year for not only our church, not only our nation, but our world. And we pray it would come to an end soon. Straight up, that's it. We're ready for this to be done with. And uh, the cry of our hearts, God, is that you would cause our world to live in safety and in health. We acknowledge, God, half a million people we've lost here in the U.S. alone. I can't imagine the grief of families. We are desperately in need of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Seriously, friends, it's just really good to see you. It's good to see you here in the West, to everybody who's in the East. I was just over there. To everybody who's joining us online, I count it a privilege to do life with you, and uh, it's good to be together. If you're a guest with us, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the team here, and... Uh, Thanks for being with us. Before we look at Scripture, by the way, would you grab a Bible if you have one with you and turn to Psalm chapter 2. It's right in the center of the book or on your, on your cell phone. And I promise not to be weepy all the way through this. But um, Before we uh, step into Scripture today, just a brief word about the upcoming Easter season, given COVID and some of the struggles that this might bring to us. You know, typically, um, we have um, the Holy Week to work with 
in which we would say, starting on Palm Sunday, we'll have a moment of celebration. The kids come in waving their, um, their palm branches and everything. And then we lead the church through, if you will, an emotional dip. Intentionally, we go in through Monday, Thursday, and into Good Friday, saying we need to remember the death of Jesus Christ and the impact that his, his work on the cross had upon all of history and our own personal lives. And so we kind of take this emotional ride Roller coaster, if you will, starting at the top, going down by the time we get to Good Friday, and then we get to the weekend, and we have Resurrection Weekend. And it's a little more difficult with COVID simply because in that period of time, usually we, year to year, we not just only see hundreds, we literally see thousands of people come into our building, and we simply, with social distancing, can't do it. So, you know, we've figured out how to manage this, that we're going to do um, that whole emotional walk in one worship service seven times. So starting Friday evening, you could join us and you'll have on Friday evening the walk down to, if you will, the emotional walk down to the, the cross of Jesus Christ and you'll have resurrection on the, in the same worship service. So we would suggest that you start thinking now, what worship service will you attend? Um, you can attend all of them if you wish, but I want you to know, are all of them gonna be the same? They are all gonna be exactly alike and I would even suggest that you might consider bringing your family Friday night or Saturday night to one of the seven services where we're going to take that ride together and uh, do it accordingly. And I think it makes sense uh, for all of us in that regard. But for today, I would like to ask your opinion about some survey questions. What's that, that, that family feud business on TV where they ask questions and you go, survey says, you've probably seen that. And if you're online with us, we're anticipating that you're going to participate in this as well by you can get in the chat and you can give us your response to these questions. East, West Auditorium, Lovington, wherever you are, wanna hear what you've got to say. For example, in your opinion, what is the flavor of green? Is it lime or is it apple? Those in the chat room, come on, start typing quickly. All right, so in this room, what's the flavor of green, lime or apple? Mint. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, according to the survey, survey says 53% of people say lime. There you go. All right. Which was kind of the opinion in the room when, when as I was listening. Or here's one that's a little more tender. Toilet paper. Over or under? Over. You didn't even wait for the people on chat. Come on. You've got to let our online people join us a little bit. Over wins the day by 88%. Isn't that fascinating? Here's another one. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. Oh, all right. Well, it's sort of split evenly. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. 88% say no. Did I got this right? Yeah, we got it right. All right. Or here's, here's one that's interesting because all of us spend a lot of time online, and those who are online right now, when it comes to your computer, you're going to choose a Mac or a PC? Oh, about even here in the room. Remember, your, your, your answer determines Bill Gates' ongoing wealth, so be careful what you, how you manage this. How's it going online? Here it is. The answer is Mac, 57%. Pat, when it comes to a pet, cat or a dog? <laughs> cat? Well, here's some cats in the room. But most people said a dog, 70% said the dog, okay? The last night of worship, there were a number of people who said, none. 
I heard that said a number of times, okay? Or here's one that might interest you. Pineapple on pizza. No. <laughs> I say yes. I love it. With a little bit of ham. In, in, up in Canada, where I grew up, spent my teenage years, they have uh, Hawaiian pizzas that have what we would call Canadian back bacon, which is like a very thick ham with pie. Oh, it's lovely stuff. In Sweden, we used to go, when we, when we, maybe you know that we worked in Sweden for a period of time, and at Fika, which is a, a, a late afternoon, early evening meal, kind of, and, and Fika, you have coffee or hot tea and, and a, a small sandwich, and they would often have a, an English muffin with a piece of thick ham and a pineapple, and they'd stick, and then cheese on top of that, and stick it in the oven. Lovely. Let's have Fika this afternoon. Everybody up for that? All right. So... Lots of debate on all sorts of questions like that. Uh, there's an, another question that I'm, we're going to focus on a little bit today that has been up for debate for generations. As a matter of fact, it's a religious question that has been the focus of countless religious gatherings and councils and convocations, if you will. And you can look back through all of church history and see this. For example, uh, back in 312, 300 years after Jesus was born, the, the Roman Emperor Constantine faced a crucial battle. So think you got to think Roman Empire, right? And there were two competing emperors at the time, both laying claim to the Roman Empire. He had Constantine and another fellow by the name of Maxentius. And they were going to go to war to battle with one another with their respective armies. And whoever won the battle was going to be declared, if you will, the, the Roman Empire's emperor. And Constantine, as he's facing this battle knows that he could probably lose his life if his army loses, or at the very least, he's going to be absolutely subservient to this new, what will be the new emperor, Maxentius. The ancient historian Eusebius tells what happens to Constantine in the days leading up to this battle in 312. Apparently, Eusebius says that Constantine looked up toward the sun, and he saw this light in the sky. He saw what appeared to him to be a form of a cross, a Christian cross, what cross that we call the Cairo, and um, with it some words that said, in this sign, conquer. And he directed his troops to cover their shields, to paint their shields with the sign of that Cairo cross, and his army won the battle. Constantine believed that that cross on the shields made the difference, and he converted from paganism to Christianity. This is 312. However, as the ensuing years moved along and as he learned more about Christianity, Constantine realized that Christianity had many differing opinions about all sorts of matters, including who is Jesus? What's the color or what's the taste of green? Lime, apple, or mint, if you will. And everybody seemed to agree that Christianity was based on the work of Jesus on his ministry, but they couldn't agree on this matter. Who was Jesus himself? Was he God's son? And if he was God's son, does that make him God? Or is he still human? Was Jesus equal to God? And so Constantine, in 325, writes to all the bishops, 18 years after he's converted, he writes to all the bishops, and, pardon me, 13 years after he's converted, he writes to all the bishops, and he says, uh, all 1,800 of you, come to Nicaea. Nicaea is a, uh, a city in northern, what was then northern Turkey, we would call northern Turkey. He says, come to Nicaea, and let's have the debate. Some 300 of them showed up, and they spent a number of days debating all kinds of struggles that were going on in the life of the church at large. And with that, the group got together, and they decided that, in fact, Jesus was fully God and fully human. 
They decided that God's Son was fully engaged in creation long before He ever came to this earth. And that's where the doctrine of the Trinity was, if you will, established as the doctrine of the church. And they wrote a creed. They wrote a statement of belief. It was a press release, if you will, an early press release. Based on our conversations, this is where we've landed. And it was, we call it these days the Nicene Creed, and it says this, that, and a lot of different things. But among the things it says, its primary focus is who is Jesus Christ. And they wrote, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, they were all men, by the way, but we'll move on from that. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He made incarnate, for, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And just looking around the room, I see some of you even mouthing the words because this may have been something that you memorized as a child. The question that brought about this gathering, this gathering of Christianity's um, if you will, the intellectual and the theological and political elites, is the question that I'd like to present to you today. The question they were trying to answer is, who is Jesus? They were asked their opinion. And it wasn't an opinion whether it's, you know, what's the taste of green, lime, or apple. No. Who is Jesus Christ? And Christianity today is in many ways based upon that original council at Nicaea. So I would like to ask you your opinion and shape the question just a little bit. Not who is Jesus per se, but who is Jesus to you? Your personal answer to that question should have implications for your life. How does Scripture answer that question? Well, let's see if we can learn that together in Psalm chapter 2 as we carry on with what is our Lenten series, looking at Old Testament passages of Scripture and seeing how they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 2, one of my favorite passages of Scripture reads this way. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Why do the kings rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles? The one enthroned in heaven, God, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, referring to David. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is written a thousand years before Jesus was born. I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, King David's writing this, he said to me, you are my son today, I've become your father. David, God says, ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. So David then says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, he'll be, or God will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For God's wrath, his wrath can flare up in a moment. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now I need to say, as I mentioned, that this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, particularly verse 8, where it says, Ask me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance. 
I'll make the ends of the earth your possession. I've had that. Um, I, I first came across that particular verse as it kind of landed in my heart probably more than 30 years ago now. I remember sitting in my desk, at my desk in the church I was serving in Tulsa when I was reading Psalm chapter 2, and that just landed in me. That's verse 8. And it's been a constant prayer for me as the pastor of this church. I've repeatedly quoted that personal prayer um, for us as a congregation. Lord, this, sort of, this is the prayer I've sort of had over and over. You can see it in my journals over and over again. Lord, I pray that our ministry is never about us building personal legacies or building Wayne Kent's legacy, if you will, but much more that our ministry together as First Christian Church would impact the people of our nation and other nations, the people of our community. And that's what I'm asking God, that that would be our legacy, that the nations will be our inheritance, the nations of people choosing Jesus as a result of our lives and our ministry. And so that's why we spend time focusing on places like Cuba and Kenya and Central Asia. Those are the nations we feel God has asked us to focus on. So this psalm is very important to me. But when it was originally written 3,000 years ago, when it was placed in the Jewish songbook hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, it was viewed as a psalm about King David. It asked the question that the people of that day were posing, particularly since Israel was really doing really well as this psalm was written. They're trying to say in this question, given that our King David is so powerful, given that God's decrees and God's will come through King David's actions, why should other nations plot against him and against us? It's, that's crazy on their part. Don't they realize that these are foolish uprisings that go against God's plan? They go against God's anointed leader? Yet, years later, so they're, 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 they've got, they're singing this psalm hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. And years later, after David is dead, the Israel story became increasingly tragic and dire. Their national glory turned to plight. And people began to realize this psalm wasn't just about King David, but was in fact prophetical scripture. And it was about the nation's plan and need for a savior and a Messiah. So within a few hundred years of, Jesus, of, of David being alive, it really became clear this is a prophetical psalm about the future when a Messiah is going to come. And those people longing for a Messiah would pray, given that our coming Messiah is so powerful, given that God's decrees and will come through Messiah's action, then why should other nations plot against him and against us? Isn't that crazy on their part? Don't they realize that these foolish, these foolish uprisings against God's anointed, against God's anointed leader, against God's anointed Messiah, don't they realize this is in fact God's son? Verse 7. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me. Go ahead, Jesus. Ask God, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The re the re we know that the reality of Jesus coming to this earth was that all the nations will worship him. They will be his legacy. In other words, the people of Jesus' day, as he's doing ministry, and they're reading Psalm 2, they believed that the day would come when their Messiah would have some sort of relationship to God that appeared like a father and son. And we as Christians believe that has taken place in Jesus Christ. We say, and really going back to 325 and earlier, 
we say that Jesus Christ completes or he fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. This view of a Messiah coming who is going to basically bless all who follow him and who is going to be the Son of God. Of course, now, when Jesus came along, it didn't go so well for him, if you'd be clearly, right? He was killed because of his claims to be God's Son. And it was really his, his assertion, his claim that he was God's Son that led to his arrest and his trial and his resurrection. And the leaders of, the, of Israel of that day, they knew that the Messiah would be God's son. And so um, when Jesus said, well, I am God's son, well, it just didn't make sense to them. Here's why. It was ludicrous to them that some guy raised in a carpenter's house up in a backwater town called Nazareth in northern Galilee. It just, it was crazy that he'd be the Messiah. I mean, they used to have a saying in those days, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And, and, and besides which, if you come out of Nazareth, you've got an accent that is just weird. You speak oddly. You don't speak like a true blood, like a blue blood. You, know? you, don't, have the right, you don't have the right pedigree, if you will, to be the Messiah. So what does all that mean? Well, maybe I could explain it this way. You are aware that after Jesus' ministry, after it came to an end, a number of Christians wrote biographies about his life, detailing what happened. And four of them end up in our Bible. We, we, we call Matthew's biography of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew deals with the language of Psalm 2 quite effectively. Uh, there are a series of events focused on this idea of Jesus being God's Son throughout the book of Matthew. And they really start in Matthew, about Matthew 14. See if you could follow some a timeline with me on this one. Um, in Matthew 14, halfway through the chapter, there's this story of Jesus sending his disciples, the, the guys who kind of hang out with him, his PR team, if you will. He sends them out in a boat out on the Sea of Galilee. He says, I'll, I'll catch up with you later, so more or less. And so um, they, they go out, and a big storm whips itself up on the Sea of Galilee, and they're extremely frightened. They can't get back. They can't row back into shore because of the wind, and they are stuck out there all night going up and down, up and down. And the Scripture says that at dawn, Jesus showed up. He's literally walking on water. When we have that saying about people walking on water and they do nothing wrong or can do no, you know, that's where that saying comes from. He's literally walking on the water, and there's a long story. Peter gets out of the boat. He walks. You've heard some of that before. But what I want you to look at today and be reminded of this. As Jesus comes walking towards the boat on the water, he steps into the boat, and suddenly the wind dies. The waves are done with, and the sea is calm. And it was so overwhelming to these guys in the boat that says this, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, you've got to be. Surely you're the Son of God. After all, if you ask me, is there, is saying, based on what I've just seen, based on how I've tasted the color of green, lime, or apple, based on my opinion... I've just seen you, Jesus. You had, the, you had the, the ability to control the physical properties of water. You had the ability to control the physical properties of gravity. You were able to control the storm. There is no one else who could ever do that unless it was the creator of the universe, namely you're the son of God. It must be the guy that's mentioned in Psalm 2. So 
Jesus has got his guys, they get out of the boat, and for the next few days in that area of Galilee, in the Galilee region, they're doing all kinds of things, and they're visiting people, and Jesus is teaching, and he's healing all kinds of people. And there's the humanity in Jesus comes out along the way, because some, a couple days later, he's, he's ruminating on all that's going on, and the way in which these disciples have acknowledged he's the Son of God. And so one day he comes to them in Matthew chapter 16, and he said, well, I know who you've said I am, but who do other people say I am? In other words, I've got your opinion. You saw creation's response. The wind died. I walked on water. And I, I know your opinion of me, but there's something within me that wants to know, how do other people view me? In other words, what's the, how would these people, how would they, do they see green as lime or apple? Do they see me as the son of God? What's everyone else's opinion of me? And Peter, one of the leaders of the group, steps forward and he doesn't answer the question. Instead he says, here's what I, he goes back with his opinion. Well, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Doesn't get to what everybody else thinks. So let me ask you this. What's your opinion of Jesus Christ? Or maybe you can put it this way. Put yourself in history at 325. And you get a letter from the Emperor Constantine. He says, I want you to come up to Nicaea. I want you to gather with all three or 400 other people if we can get them all together. I'm sending this out to 1,800 people. You're on the list. And I want you to come all together in Nicaea here, and I want you to figure out who is Jesus Christ. Is he a rabbi with some cool teaching? Or is he the Son of God? If you got the letter and you went to the council, what's your opinion? The same question was asked of the leaders of Israel um, on the night that Jesus was arrested. We have the story of where he's arrested. He's, he's being interrogated by these leaders. And um, they ask him this in Luke. Are you the son of God? And he doesn't deny it. He says, well, yeah. You say, I am. He'd simply let their question stand as fact. He didn't deny it. So what's your opinion? I mean, it led to his death. But what's your opinion? Would you agree with the bishops of the Council of Nicaea? They, not all of them, but a huge majority, about there were five or six who disagreed, but apart from that, uh, all of them said Jesus was God's son. Or would you side with the leaders of ancient Israel claiming that Jesus had committed a capital offense by claiming to be the son of God? What do you believe? See, if Jesus and the bishops were wrong, then, friend, we have a significant problem. Here's why. Jesus claimed to be God's son. And what kind of good rabbi would claim something that wasn't true? If Jesus is not the son of God, we're left with some choices. Either he was deranged and crazy, right? What kind of person thinks they are actually the, the son of God? That's nuts, isn't it? Or he's a liar and the greatest scam artist of all history. Think of how many people have been duped over the last 2,000 years. Or his claim to be the son of God is the truth. You can't have it sort of in the middle given that he claimed to be the Son of God. 
Since he claimed to be the Son of God, he it's either truth, or he's an idiot, or a liar. And for Christians, if he's not the Son of God, then we're in real trouble. Because we too have been duped, and we are still living with our sins and our shame attached to our very souls, and we have foolishly, if this is the case, that Jesus is not the Son of God, we have foolishly, foolishly attached our eternal destiny, along with our personal peace, to a false religion that is based on lies and a crazy fellow. But if Jesus is the Son of God, as he claims, in, as, is, as is found in Psalm 2, then that has huge implications for our lives. Of course it does. For example, if Jesus claimed to be the Son of God is true, then it forces a question to you, and it asks you to choose what's your opinion. So you can choose to forego that Jesus is God's Son. You get to do that. By virtue of your human ability, you get to say, hmm, I'm, I'm forming a different opinion. Everyone else thinks that, green, that lime is the taste of green, but I'm going with apple. You have to, to do that, to say no. You have to, with some integrity, say, I think Jesus was a deranged idiot or a liar, or I'm just, or I'm just not interested at all. You can take that position. However, if you believe that he was more than just a wise or sort of off-center, off-kelter rabbi, then you have to go with he's the son of God. And if he's the son of God, that has significant responses within our lives. First of all, it calls us to some radical discipleship. And I say radical because there's nothing half-baked about following Jesus. Following Jesus is not some kind of, well, gentle lifestyle without demands. No, discipleship means following Jesus. It means living as he lived and as he stated, love God and love others. It's not love God sometimes and just the people who are pretty. Love God, love others. That's it straight up. That's radical. It's counterintuitive and it's counterculture in which we cancel people because they don't follow what we want them to do in, in, in our culture. And I want to go, come on. Jesus said, love God, love others. Not even if they love you back. Not, I mean, enough said. It's very radical. So it means that Christians live differently. Our discipleship, our following means choosing right over wrong. Always, in every event. It means honesty and integrity, even when it costs, because friends, I'm quite convinced of this, honesty will cost us. Not always, but often. It means gentleness and kindness and generosity of soul and pocketbook. Living differently means we choose different language patterns. We sound different. It means we choose different keyboard stroke habits. It means we choose different lifestyles. It means we have different priorities. It's a high calling, a high demand. There's no pride involved. We offer grace and love. We let it cover a multitude of sins that are committed by us and toward us. In any variety of settings, in as many different settings as there are Christians. Think of it this way. We discussed a few weeks ago how Peter... On the night that Jesus is, was uh, arrested and is in tri on trial, Peter is following the crowd and he's around this fire with, uh, with other people and, and they're listening to the, to the trial take place up above them. And, and um, people go, well, you, mu you must be a follower of Jesus because you sound like him. You've got that crazy weird accent from northern Galilee. You just, you don't talk right. People recognize Peter as a follower of Jesus by the way in which he talked. Huh? 
Do people recognize you as a follower of Jesus Christ based on the way in which you walk and talk? Can they tell? Here's how they could tell. Your childlike faith. Oh, I know we don't want to hear childlike faith, do we? We want an adult faith that's this 21st century. We want a complicated approach to Christian spirituality. And there are certainly plenty of adult-based approaches to thinking and reasoning for Christian faith that are all legitimate. I get it. Apologetics, I love it. Fair enough. For certain. But in the long run, I remind you what Jesus said, that if you want to discover the kingdom of God, you've got to approach it like a child does. So that means questions. You got questions of God? I do. Children have all kinds of questions they want to know. Why and how and when and if. And I've got lots of how and why and when and if questions for God. And when he gets them all answered, I'm going to go back around a second time with a lot more why questions for sure. But I also want to figure out how children think. As Jeremy Myers says, becoming a little child means that we maintain the wonderful and beautiful characteristics and qualities of children that life in this sinful world tends to beat out of adults. Like what? Like tenderness of conscience and openness about emotions and feelings, creativity and imagination, wonder and awe. Things like joy and eternal hope and playfulness and humor. Attitudes like trust and easy forgiveness. Undying love. Boundless, never-ending. Onward, 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 exuberance and energy. Four-year-old twin grandson spending the night two nights in a row. Boundless, boundless energy. Boundless. Kids, I'm holding my eyes open with toothpicks. Please go to sleep. That sort of thing. What's next, Papa? That's me. That's us and God. What's next, God? What are we going to do next? Always thinking the best about life and other people. Being willing to learn and grow. Those are the sorts of qualities that define children. And they get, they get stripped out of us adults, don't they? Because we face difficulties and we face COVID for more than a year and it just messes with our mental health. It messes with our spirituality. It messes with our relationships. Adults, we get bored with flowers and bugs and sunsets. We seem to lose delight in talking with others about simply nothing. And we become jaded and disinterested. We hold grudges and harbor fears and we stay angry. angry. Adults refuse to forgive, we remember slights, and we lose our hope because our hopes are often dashed and destroyed so many times. And we say, I'm doing this, this thing this way because this is the way I've always done it, and we have trouble imagining or approaching it in any other way. But children do not behave these ways. They grow, they learn, they change. Jesus didn't behave that way. Jesus was God's son. And since children do not behave in these ways, and Jesus, God's son, did not behave in in these ways, neither should his followers. Let's pray together. Lord, um, my friends here today are like me. We, um, 
we, we, we want to walk with you. We want to sound like you. We want to talk like you. We want to live our lives in a way that are right and true and honest. We would like to approach um, your kingdom like a child does. Honest, changing, playful. But there are moments, Lord, when um, our story is such that it's really hard because that playfulness, that interest in things just gets, I mean, the life, it gets sucked out of us at times. I pray, God, that everyone here today, everyone online, those live, those watching days, weeks, months after this, I pray, God, that all of us would come to an understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. Lord, we're choosing to place our eternal destiny upon his work at the cross. We are choosing to say that he has a claim upon our lives, that he wasn't some crazy man, he wasn't some scam artist, but he was and is, in fact, the Son of God. And may our lives be different this week, accordingly we pray, in Christ's name. Lord, I pray that, I pray that we would have the faith of children that just in simple purity, I'm willing to say, you're the Son of God. We may not get it all right all the time, but kids, Lord, just offering up their praise, offering up their life to you. Let us live that way, we pray, in Christ's name.
pour out our praise to you. We lift your name up high and we praise you for you alone. You are the Son of God Most High, the Savior of the world, Lord God. So we look to you. We lift our praises to you, Lord God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.